I'd like to invite the rest of you, if you will, to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Come this morning uh, in our study of the scripture, we come to a place where Jesus is about to choose 12 followers who are going to be closely associated with him uh, for the next uh, portion of his public ministry. Let me give you a little bit of background that I think sometimes uh, we get notions in our mind that are just assumptions uh, that kind of come because the way we've always heard the story, so to speak. Uh, We often think of Jesus having 12 disciples and that he picked them like day one or two and they stayed with him the whole time. And that's not exactly uh, the way it happened. In fact, this choosing of the 12 occurs about the middle or the midpoint of his public ministry. This is about a year and a half or so into his public ministry. Now you'll notice that we are reading about it in the sixth chapter of Luke, and Luke has quite a few more chapters to go. Um, And that's uh, because the gospel writers, uh, practically, well, all of them, Uh, tend to weight the gospel story more heavily toward the latter part of Jesus' ministry and especially uh, toward the the week that begins on his triumphant entry into Jerusalem and what we call Holy Week and the crucifixion, the resurrection. In fact, an entire half of John's gospel beginning in chapter 12, is focused on that week alone. And so all of the Gospels tend to uh, give us a a much closer look at the ministry of Christ in his last year and a half or so. That's also true of Luke. So here we are in chapter 6, and we're already a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. Um, I was reading a book called The Training of the Twelve by A.B. Bruce. He's a fellow that lived in the 19th century, about 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And uh, he says there are three phases that we can identify in um, talking about the disciples of Christ. I want to read you what he says about those because uh, it will help us to get an idea of what's going on. He says, the first stage, they were simply believers in him as the Christ and his occasional companions at convenient, particularly festive seasons. In other words, in the very beginning of his ministry, the the people who became the twelve apostles and others like them would go to hear Jesus, much like, you know, we follow a popular speaker or follow a popular band. Okay, uh, he's in town, let's go hear him. And they would go out to hear him, or they would go uh, to nearby communities. 
but they would go back to their jobs and they would go back to their families and their homes and they would carry on their life as usual uh, in between these times. As time moved along, um, the second stage is fellowship with Christ assumed the form of an uninterrupted attendance on his person involving entire or at least habitual abandonment of secular occupations. Now, what he means by that is, in the second phase, many of these people uh, had become uh, attached to his ministry to the point that they were leaving behind some of their regular duties. Uh, Paul tells us, for example, that Peter um, took along his wife. He tells us that in Corinthians. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that he just took her along after Pentecost, but very well from the beginning. She might have traveled with him. Um, we know that other women were in the company of Jesus and traveled about. Uh, we know that there were more followers than just the twelve. You recall in the upper room, when they were waiting on Pentecost, um, Judas had betrayed Jesus, and then he uh, committed suicide, and so he is out of the picture. And uh, they, Peter says, we need to choose someone to fill his place as one of the twelve. And do you remember what the criteria was for making their choice? Someone who has been with us from the beginning and has witnessed these things and observed all of the things that Jesus has said and done. So in other words, um, there were more people that followed Jesus from the beginning even than just the twelve. Uh, we learned that there were um, quite a few more. In fact, in the upper room, we find out that there were 120 people uh, waiting on the promise of the Father. And so that's quite a large group to be gathering, uh, waiting for the kind of the birth of the church, 120 people, uh, 10 times more than just the disciples. So there was a, a second phase in which Jesus invited a lot of people to follow him. Not thousands, but dozens and dozens, perhaps. And more or less, they kind of followed Jesus around in his ministry. We learn about the disciples being called before they became the twelve apostles. And the reason that they're highlighted is because they did become the Twelve Apostles. Do you follow me what I'm saying there? Um, let's say there were 40 people whom Jesus said, come follow me. We didn't hear about the other 28. But what we have heard about is the Twelve. And the reason we heard about them is because they became very significant and very special. So during this second phase of ministry, Jesus has a lot of people following him that he has invited to accompany him in his ministry. And then uh, 
Professor Bruce says in the third phase of his ministry, it says this last stage and highest stage when they were chosen by the master from the mass of his followers and formed into a select band to be trained for the great work of apostleship. This important event probably did not take place till all the members of the apostolic circle had been for some time with Jesus Christ. The, the question becomes, what kind of people made up the disciples of Jesus? Now, let's look at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read this section, and we're going to talk about these people. It was at this time that Jesus went off to a mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and chose twelve of them whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, thank you so much, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, when you think about the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles, what kind of people do you think about? You know, a lot of times I think we get in our minds that these were uh, super spiritual saints. You know, they're like superheroes. And uh, they, they were, they're, well, they're different from the rest of us because they became apostles. And they had to be very special people to become apostles. But in fact, when you read the list, they were some very ordinary people. And I really want us to notice that this morning because it's easy to take biblical characters and assign them a role that is bigger than life, when in fact the message of the scripture is about ordinary people whose lives became special because of their relationship with God. And that underscores the potential that every one of us has to be special with Jesus Christ. You know, you, you don't have to start out a special person. The thing that makes you unique is submitting to the leadership of Jesus Christ. So, we already know something about Simon and Andrew and James and John. Uh, we know, for example, that these guys, by the way, this Simon is the one whom Jesus named Peter. These four fellows were fishers. They were fishermen. And if you've been around fishermen who do it for a living, um, you know that there are, there are some groups of people whose occupation just kind of speaks of toughness. And um, people that are in these occupations are people that, 
you know, they, they, they deal with the nitty-gritty of life, so to speak, and they're, they're just, they're people that are tough because of the kinds of jobs they have. Now, they may be gentle souls, but they have to be a certain kind of person to, to be a fisherman or to be in some of these sorts of occupations. And Peter and James uh, and John and Andrew were among those that were uh, very ordinary, but very hardworking, tough-minded, average-going people that made their living day in and day out with smelly fish. Uh, that's just how they did their thing. Um, you recall how Jesus asked Peter before this event, uh, on one occasion, he got in Peter's boat, asked him to put out from the shore a little bit, and using that vantage point, he taught the crowds. And then he told Peter, who had had a terrible night fishing, they hadn't caught one single thing, he said, put your boat out a little further and throw down your nets. You remember that story, and Peter did what Jesus told him, even though he didn't think it was going to work. And next thing you know, they're pulling in this hull that the boats are sinking. You know, I think sometimes we miss the drama of Scripture. Um, I told you it took four or five people to man these boats. And I can just see, you know, Peter and Andrew are in the boat, and they've got their crew with them, and all of a sudden the water's starting to slosh in, and the boat's starting to sink, and they're yelling at James and John to come out and help them, and they got all this drama going on, and when they finally kind of stabilize the boats, you know, Peter falls down at his feet and says, Master, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. What does that tell you about Peter? He's honest. And he doesn't think he's qualified to be a follower of Jesus. He doesn't think he's got what it takes. In fact, Jesus kind of scares him a little bit. How do I know that? Because Jesus' next words to him are, Don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. Come after me and I will make you a fisher of men. And yet Peter's own perspective is, I'm interested in spiritual things. I have an appetite for spiritual things. But I'm common. I'm ordinary. In fact, I mess up a lot. I'm a sinful man. I make a lot of mistakes. And Jesus, frankly, you kind of scare me. Just leave me alone. That was his attitude. And Peter, of course, became the leader, eventually, among the disciples. And yet, he kept making mistakes. He wasn't kidding when he said, I'm prone to messing up, you know. He kept making those mistakes. But he, he had the kind of nature that God could turn into leadership. And Peter became uh, kind of his right-hand person. In fact, of these four, three of them became his close associates. Peter became the leader of the twelve. James became the very first person to die for his faith and testimony in Jesus Christ. He was the first martyr. 
And John, just the opposite. He lived beyond all of them, all the way to practically the end of the first century. He was an old man in his 80s and 90s when he wrote those very special letters and his gospel and the revelation. And so here were these three closest people to Jesus' heart. They started out as fishermen. Philip and Bartholomew. Uh, you know, Philip's name, many times people were named, uh, or their names were even changed, to fit their characteristics. Now, I don't know if this is true of Philip, but Philip's name means lover of horses. He was a lover of horses. You know, I, either he was or he just got named that. But um, maybe there was some equestrianism in his background. I don't know. But Philip was one of those uh, fellows and Bartholomew. Matthew. Now, you know, if you were going to pick 12 people that were going to represent you to the nation of Israel, politically speaking, the last person you would pick would be a tax collector. I mean, that might be the bottom line choice in any culture at any time. <laughs> those people always make you nervous. And um, Levi, which is his other name, was a tax collector. Not the kind of person you would choose to be among your innermost circle. And yet Jesus could see what Matthew could be. And then there was Thomas. We all know about Thomas, don't we? He was a skeptic. And Thomas was one of those guys that it was like, prove it to me. Show me. He was from Missouri. The show me state, you know? Some of you don't have that. Okay. Need a geography lesson. Anyway, um, Thomas was the kind of guy that said, I'm not believing it until I see it with my own eyes. Remember him after the resurrection? He wasn't there when the disciples got together. You know why? I think, I think because uh, he didn't expect anything. I mean, of all the disciples, I don't think Thomas expected anything. They told him the news, you know. It's been noise that Jesus has, has risen. They gathered in the upper room. Not Thomas. Thomas isn't interested. And so... When Jesus appeared to them, he wasn't there. Now they've got something really to share with him. Hey, Thomas, we saw him ourselves. We saw the Lord. And Thomas says, yeah, right. Unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I touch the holes in his hand, unless I put my hand in the hole in his side, I'm not buying it. I just don't believe that people come out of the grave like that. Next time he's present, Jesus comes and he looks right at Thomas. He says, Thomas, put out your hand. Touch me. Put your hand in my side. See that I'm not a ghost. And Thomas needs no more proof. He falls at his feet and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, you have seen me and you believe because you've seen me 
Blessed are those who believe who have never seen me, and yet they have faith and confidence in my resurrection. Well, we know that that transformed Thomas's life. Tradition tells us that he went further east than anyone and actually migrated over to the land of India and established a church in India. And people in southern India today who are followers of Christ point back to Thomas as the founder of their church. And then there was Simon who was called a zealot. Now, we don't know a lot about what kind of zealot he was. He may have been a political zealot. But for all we know, he may just have been a passionate kind of guy that was always, uh, you know, given 110% to everything he did. I don't know where he got that nickname, but whatever it was, he was, you know, he was one of those uh, ADD type A people, apparently. He, he was just ready to go and full of it and, and definitely uh, committed to whatever he was involved in. Then there was Judas, the son of James, and there was Judas Iscariot. And Luke adds this addendum, who became a traitor. I want to point out to you that Judas Iscariot did not start out a traitor. He became a traitor. In fact, we learn a lot about Judas as time goes along. We learn that uh, he frequently uh, kept the money bag and often helped himself to it. Don't you find it rather odd that a person who was known to pilfer the cash drawer was the one that Jesus put in charge of the cash drawer. You know, Jesus is a little funny that way. I think many times he tries to give you opportunity. He tries to give you a chance to be different. He puts you in a situation where you have a choice to make. And he holds out hope for you. I think even at the end, Judas could have repented. I know there are prophecies in the scripture, and I know the prophecies are fulfilled and they unfold. But there is a delicate interplay between the sovereign providence of God and the free will of human beings. And no one has ever been forced to be a sinner. Judas chose a path that Jesus was constantly trying to call him back from. And yet he never really paid attention. These are the people that Jesus called to be his disciples. You know, they're not a lot different than the ones of us who are sitting in this room this morning. Well, maybe they are. Maybe they're a little less likely to be good candidates. Maybe their lives are a little further out on the edge than most of us. And yet the thing that made them special was not because of who they were, but because of the one with whom they were associated. They were committed to Jesus Christ. Now, 
the second thing that I want us to take away from this passage, and you can't read it and, and miss this. In the first two verses, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. Remember what I told you at the beginning, that there had been a large group of people following Jesus. More than 12. 30, 40, 50, I don't know. There was a large group following Jesus. They had been following him for some time at his invitation. But they were not specially identified as the twelve apostles. Those whom he selected out of this number were going to occupy a very significant place in the development and history of the church. The twelve apostles were going to be the foundation of the church that he was going to build. He himself is the cornerstone but these fellows were going to be the bedrock. They were going to be the, the foundation on which the future of the church rested. Into their lives, he would pour all of his energies and all of his teaching. He would take them into his confidence. They would listen to him pray. They would go where he went. They would eat with him. They would camp out with him when he had nowhere to go for the evening. They would see him at the good times and the bad times. They would be with him in all the circumstances. It was time to make the selection to identify the twelve analogous to the twelve tribes of Israel. These would be the twelve foundation stones of the church. Their names would be special even into eternity. In the book of Revelation, they're singled out. They're unique individuals. How do you make that choice? We've talked about this before, but some people have the mistaken notion that Jesus knew everything during his incarnation. And I remind you that he did not. In fact, on one clear occasion, he tells us he doesn't know everything when he says not even the Son of Man knows when the second coming will be. Only the Father who's in heaven knows that. And, and so Jesus is very clear to tell us that he relies upon the Father for knowledge and for wisdom. He is modeling for us how to live life in the Spirit. So what does he do when it's time to choose these 12 special people. He spends a whole night talking to the Father about it. He spends a whole night in prayer. This is so important. It's so momentous. It's so necessary that he get it right. That Jesus finds it necessary to spend a whole night in prayer. 
So many times, friends, you and I think that we can make important decisions in life by drawing a line down a sheet of paper and putting the pros and cons. You know, by, uh, Lord, guide me, please, thank you, amen. Um, by analyzing it according to human wisdom. But may I suggest to you, when it comes time to choose a college, when it comes time to choose a major, when it comes time to accept a job or choose a career, oh, when it comes time to choose a life partner, to get married, when it comes time to buy a home, to buy a car, to manage your budget. May I suggest that those kinds of decisions require much time with the Father. Listen, God knows the future. He knows the plans He has for you, plans for a hope and a future. He knows how He's wired you. He has made you for His purposes. He knows how to lead you. He knows what the right choices will be. I was talking with a group of pastors the other day and we were talking about um, when do you go to a ministry, when do you leave a ministry. And um, I was looking back over my lifetime, and I am able to say to you with very sincere, straight and honest face, <laughs> I have never gone anywhere that God did not tell me that that's where he was sending me before the official board or personnel gave me a call. God made it clear to me. And I have never left anywhere until God said, your time here is done. And when Rowena and I married, we bathed our relationship in prayer. And from the very beginning, it was spirit-led and God-anointed. And all through life have been the major decisions that have been taken after prayer. Because you can't afford to get some things wrong. <laughs> and I want to tell you that that doesn't mean that everything always turns out beautiful. Just, you know, hunky-dory happy. Sometimes you have difficulties. Sometimes things seem to not go the right way. Sometimes there are problems. And may I respectfully say that if you have been led of God, when you hit the snag, when Judas shows up somewhere, you can go back and say, Father, this was your choice. It's your problem. And I mean that reverently. 
Because if God has led us, then He has purposes. It is His problem. It's not mine. I'm so thankful that in difficult situations in pastoral ministry, one of the questions I have never asked is, how did I get myself into this mess? Because I never got myself into that mess. Oh, I might have got myself into the particular one, but I'm at the place because God led me, and I have no question about it. There's no doubt. I'm settled, and I can rest in that. It's God's decision. You know, and, and when marriage gets tough, you, those of you that have been married a while, you know marriage has its ups and downs. But when it gets tough, it's good to know that God led in this decision. You know, that's, that's one thing that Rowan and I decided from the outset. Divorce is not on the table. It's not an option. You follow God in the beginning and you make a commitment. And then when times get tough, you trust God. You trust God because He's faithful. And when you get into that job or into that career or into that college situation and you've got a course and it's tough and it's like, how am I ever going to get through this? God, it's your problem. You led me here. What a freedom that is. You know, I don't know what Jesus was feeling as he began to see Judas emerging as that traitor. I don't know what was going on in his heart. I think he was very sad for Judas. Right up until the Last Supper, I see him offering fellowship and friendship. Judas had made up his mind and was headed his own way. But Jesus had no sense of guilt. It wasn't him who got him into that mess. It was the direction of the Father in the choosing of the Twelve. I only do what I see my Father doing. Friends, spending the night in prayer, spending time in prayer, is crucial for the, every decision of life. But the big ones, oh, the bigger they are, the more time you need to get it right with God. To make sure you have his direction. Father, I want to thank you this morning for the possibility that all of us have to be very special in your kingdom and in your sight. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you this morning. Lord Jesus, that you have modeled for us right here the spiritual way to make good decisions. To be led by the Holy Spirit in the things we choose. May we be people of prayer who are committed to your leadership. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.